When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, welcome to the New Books in Japanese Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Hans Weinberg, a star of Japan and Penn State in the USA. Today, we'll be talking to Professor Rotem Kovner from Haifa University about his book, Tsushima, which is a part of the Great Battle series in Oxford University Press. I've known Professor Kovner for many years and recently finished writing a paper with him on a very uh, different issue, if tangentially connected, of the Holocaust in Japan. And we'll get to why it's connected later on, I hope. So it gives me great pleasure to have the opportunity to talk to uh, Professor Kovner about his new book. Hello, Juan. Hello. Hello. to speak with you, and I appreciate your invitation to discuss my book, Tsushima. Thank you. I'm delighted you're here. So, uh, Autumn, if you don't mind me calling you uh, Autumn, uh, what brought you to this story? Can you tell us more about your own background as well? and how it connected to the story of Tsushima. This narrative uh, interwines uh, two subjects that deeply captivate my interest, the Russo-Japanese War and naval history. My fascination with the Russo-Japanese War took part, took root during my postdoctoral research in the mid-1990s. At that time, the conflict was often overshadowed, considered a minor and somewhat forgotten chapter, an almost colonial war. However, my encounters with historical material and accounts piqued my curiosity. During that period, I was immersed in the study of racial perception of Japanese in the Meiji era. It's the period uh, spent from 1868 to 1912. I was particularly taken aback by the shift in the racial images of the Japanese, both in the Western world and even more significantly in the perception of the Japanese themselves, which appeared during and after the war against Russia. This realization spurred me to write my initial article on the, this topic, on debunking the false claim that the Tsar Nicholas II initiated the war against Japan as an act of revenge for the foreign assassination attempt during his visit to Japan in 1891. In the following years, as the centennial commemoration of the Russo-Japanese War drew near, I became part of a group of historians committed to the restoring what we believe to be the rightful place of this war in historical narratives. Our collective efforts aim to highlight its global importance and so to ensure that it received the recognition it deserved in the annals of history. Simultaneously, the Battle of Tsushima, a significant event in naval history, holds personal significance as well. It connects to an earlier period of my life where my autobiography converged with academia. My late father, a naval officer turned merchant marine officer, eventually became a teacher at a marine school specializing in navigation. His passion for history, particularly World War II, resonated through our home, where seafaring and naval history were frequently discussed. Unsurprisingly, my own path led me to become a naval officer myself, although my stint in the Israeli Navy was relatively brief, yet impactful. At the age of 24, I departed from the military to embark on a journey of travel and academic studies. Years later, as a professor at the University of Haifa, I interceded when 
when this institution was chosen to host the academic studies of the Israeli Navy, which are still uh, teach today. Joining the faculty members teaching in this program of the officer course, I designed and delivered the course on naval strategy in, modern, in the modern era. Over time, my understanding of this subject expanded significantly, allowing, allowing me to situate the Battle of Tsushima not only within the Japanese and Russian modern history, but also within the broader context of naval history. Thank you. I didn't know you were in the Navy. Uh, we always thought about people in the Navy as being very spoiled. I was in infantry myself. So uh, I want to go to the, really to the, to the series uh, that the book is in, right? Uh, the book is part of, part of the Great Battle series of Oxford University Press. And I really, maybe risky stating the obvious. I want to ask you maybe a very basic question. What is a Great Battle? And in what way Tsushima is one. I mean, when you think about great battles, you might think of, in Japan, maybe Midway, uh, but why Tsushima won one of the great battles of Japan and in general? Mm-hmm. Well, the uh, Oxford Great Battle series is a, is a great series, in my view. <laughs> with, uh, with 11 books at present, it deals with the battles that, according to Oxford definition, acquired iconic status in history. And uh, these battles, so this series examines some of the most important battles humanity has seen, re-examines their importance, and quite uniquely looks also at the way they have been commemorated often until today. Tsushima is the first naval battle in this series. I'm not sure it is referred to as an iconic battle today, but in my view it should be. Iconic or not, I do believe that Tsushima was a great battle. There are several factors that seem to make military engagement great, and they are pertinent to naval battles as well. This, this begin with the scale of the battle as measured in the number of sailors and warships involved and in, this, in the decisiveness of its outcomes. Even more importantly, what really makes a battle great, in my opinion, is the nature of the issue at stake and the way the battle affects them. In other words, we have to examine both the impact the battle exerts on the course of the war, as well as the long-term repercussions it exerts on the belligerent's geopolitical situation and on naval evolution. Tsushima seems to meet all these criteria. To start with, it was titanic battle bringing together some 30,000 participants and more than 150 warships. These forces were smaller in terms of sailors, about 65%, but almost twice as large in terms of vessels than in the Battle of Trafalgar of 1805, and appreciably larger than any other naval engagement until the Battle of Jutland in 1960s. In other words, within the span of... 111 years, that was the largest battle. In terms of repercussions, the impact of Tsushima seems pervasive. The battle brought the war to an end, or at the very least, definitely expedited it. Geopolitically, it exerted a profound impact on the involvement of the belligerent in Northeast Asia and the Pacific area during the subsequent years, if not decades. In this light, how does the Battle of Tsushima stand? Can it, compared, can it be compared favorably to the most outstanding naval clashes since early modern times, such as Lepanto, Trafalgar, Jutland, and Midway? Let's start with Lepanto. 1571, between a coalition of Mediterranean Catholic states and the Ottoman Empire off the Greek coast, the Battle of Lepanto is often considered the greatest early modern naval clash. This battle was significantly larger than its 1905 counterpart in terms of the number of participants and warships. In other respects, however, Lepanto was not as impressive. True, it proved that the Ottomans were unstoppable, but with some 10,000 dead belonging to the Catholic 
coalition, the victory itself was not as decisive. And more importantly, the victor, the victors failed to capitalize on their triumph. In fact, the Ottomans had already rebuilt their navy half a year after the battle and were able to reassert their hegemony in the very place the battle took place, as well as in the entire eastern Mediterranean region. The Battle of Trafalgar is another common comparison, fought between the British Royal Navy and the combined fleet of the French and Spanish navies exactly a century before the Battle of Tsushima, which was similar in scale and in decisiveness. Nevertheless, it had little strategic impact on the war as a whole. The French Navy remained a significant rival, and the war itself raged for another 10 years. The Battle of Jutland took place in 1916, another great battle. As the largest naval, ba naval battle of the First World War and the greatest single clash of all time between the British and the German fleet, it was colossal in scale. And yet, it was neither decisive nor did it exert any considerable impact on the entire war or on subsequent naval evolution. Thereafter, and as a fleet of fleeting being, the Imperial German Navy High Seas Fleet continued to pose a threat, and the war carried on for another two and a half years. Finally, the Battle of Midway was also gigantic, although in practice and due to the distances between the two fleets, the number of warships and crews participating actively was similar to its Tsushima equivalent. Widely considered to be a decisive battle, its outcomes were not as, not as uneven as in Tsushima. Still, the greatest difference, differences between the two battles lie in their impact. Although it has often been called the turning point of the Pacific, midway neither stopped the, uh, the Imperial Japanese Navy nor brought the war to an end. In fact, the two belligerents would clash again several times and the war would continue for an additional three years. So indeed, by all means, Tsushima was a great battle, perhaps the world's greatest battle ever. Sorry, but it wasn't... Uh, sorry, my mic was, was closed. But it wasn't even the biggest war of, of the... I mean, I, I know... I understand, of course, I read a book. I understand why, why Tsushima is so important and why it's so decisive, given uh, the outcome. But can you argue that other battles, I mean, if you think in terms of background, what happened before the battle, there's other battles that are almost as important in the war itself, like, for example, the Battle of the LOC. What makes those two battles different, and why, makes, why, why Tsushima actually led to Japanese victory in the war, if we assume that that's what happened? Well, to understand the, the importance of Tsushima, we have to go... Uh... A little earlier, perhaps 50, almost 40 years earlier, our story unfolds shortly after the major restoration of 1868 when a group of reactionary samurai came to the realization that Japan could not maintain a state of quasi-isolation within the global geopolitical context of the time. Recognizing the need to defend against foreign imperialism, the samurai, later known as the Meiji oligarchy, understood that Japan had to open up, develop, and embark on its own version of imperialism. Well, it didn't take immediately, but within several years. And Japan began to, began to intervene in the politics of East Asia, particularly in Korea, and expressed interest in acquiring territory on the continent, the importance of the navy became apparent. In essence, as an island nation like Britain, Japan needed to exert control over the seas that separated it from the continent. This is an astounding tale, particularly considering that by 1868, Japan did not possess a naval force or a modern national army. While the Russo-Japanese War can be seen as a conflict between two ascending powers in Asia, they diverged significantly in one crucial aspect. Japan, possessing at the time the world's sixth largest navy, 
at the onset of the war, was a naval empire. On the other hand, Russia, with the world's third largest navy, was a continental empire. The ter territories it controlled were direct extensions of its own rather than overseas territories. Additionally, Russia had the advantage of the Trans-Siberian Railroad, an immense civil engineering project initiated in 1891 and slated for completion by the summer of 1904. This railroad allowed for the rapid troop for rapid troop mobilization to East Asia and so could make Russia a hegemon, a hegemon power in the region. Consequently, one of Japan's primary objectives during the war was to secure full control over the surrounding seas from the very beginning of the fightings. But by doing so, it aimed to establish a foothold on the continent while keeping Russia at bay. The entire conflict, in my view, can be understood as Japan's endeavor, endeavor to naturalize the Russian fleet, beginning with, Russia, with the Pacific fleet stationed at Port Arthur, and later, after its annihilation, focusing on the Baltic fleet, which arrived from Europe under the name of the Second Pacific Fleet. However, and here comes the point, until the Battle of Tsushima, the Imperial Japanese Navy had largely failed to accomplish this goal, although the Russian Pacific Fleet remained within the confines of its secure harbor in Port Arthur, hardly left out, it continued to pose a constant threat to the to Japanese war efforts as a fleet in being. I mentioned it already before. This term refers to a naval force that exerts a controlling influence without ever venturing beyond the safety of its ports. From the Japanese perspective, the Battle of the Yellow Sea in August 1904, more than almost a year earlier, was deemed a failure since the escaping Russian fleet suffered minimal damage and remain a potential threat even after returning to port. This did not happen in Tsushima, and the Admiral Togohe Achiro, the Admiral of the Combined Fleet, was resolute to avoid this happening again. And why did Tojo win? Um, why did the IGN win? Uh, the battle had the, uh, the, the Imperial Navy really had uh, superior tactics and discipline, and it's very clear from your survey of the battle that they were the better fleet. But in the beginning, it wasn't, an, you, they wanted an obvious favorite to win. Could you maybe give us a, a short survey of the battle and why did Japan win? Why did Japanese Navy prevail in this? It's a wonderful question. In fact, here, most of the naval experts of the time became an expert in hindsight. So we can analyze it here and these days. It, is easily. On the eve of the battle, the outcome of who would emerge victorious was uncertain. The Russian possessed more battleships and a significantly larger number of high-caliber guns, 41 versus 17 in fact, which were considered decisive weapons. In hindsight, we can acknowledge that Japanese were better trained and fighting close to their home territory. However, these factors were only became apparent later. So what actually happened there? The battle took place between the island of Tsushima and the Japanese coast of northern Kyushu, in an area known as the Tsushima Strait, I guess not far from where you are sitting at the moment, run. In the early morning of May 27, 1905, the Japanese managed to track the Russian fleet heading north near the Korea Strait, but lost sight of them after more than more than a day. Prior to the battle, both commanders, Admiral Togoe Achiro on the Japanese side and Admiral Zinovi Rojesvensky on the Russian side, divided their sizable forces into multiple sub-forces, with the strongest division leading the way. The engagement between the main forces of the two fleets 
commenced around 2, 2 p.m. Wintogo executed a brilliant and unexpected maneuver, often called in Japan the Togo Turn. This maneuver enabled him to concentrate his firepower on the leading Russian warships, effectively gaining control of the battle. While the significance of this maneuver has been exaggerated, the Japanese did manage to sink or disable several of the most crucial Russian battleships in the following hours. This probably uh, this decided the battle later. By evening, the Japanese achieved a resounding victory, but Togo was not satisfied. As darkness fell, he ordered his largest warships to rest for the night and dispatched around 100 smaller vessels, including destroyers and torpedo boats. Just to understand the size, battleships at that time were about 15,000 tons each. The destroyers were two, 300 tons, and the torpedo boats were less than 100 tons. Very small, like uh, bees or wasps. Exploiting the cover of darkness, the smaller warships carried out their mission remarkably well. By morning, the remaining Russian warships, predominantly under the command of Rear Admiral Nebogato, decided to surrender. This is the third part. The victory was comprehensive. Out of the 38 Russian vessels present before the battle, only three managed to reach the Russian port of Vladivostok, with a few more seeking refuge in neutral neutral ports. All the others either either sank or surrendered. Russia's total losses amounted to close to 200,000 tons, which were 93% of the entire fleet, whereas Japan lost a mere 265 tons. It's a ratio of about 70, 750 to 1. It's an incredible ratio of losses. The casualties sustained during the battle were also vastly dis disparate. The Russians suffered devastating losses with 4,830 dead and close to 6,000 captured, many of whom were wounded. In contrast, the Japanese losses were relatively small. Today it might be considered high, with 117 fatalities. Even this is a ratio of 1 to more than 1 to 40. How can we explain such a remarkably one-sided victory? Contemporary observers and analysts widely agreed on their assessment of the battle. They often highlighted the Russian shortcomings before the battle. Uh, they were ill-assorted rebels, one wrote a collection of ships and so on. And, on the other hand, the exceptional performance of the Japanese during the, the engagement. Based on my own analysis, the Japanese possessed several clear advantages. To start with, the Russian Navy, particularly, particularly Admiral Rozhensky, made several critical strategic and tactical er errors. St strategically, the Russian Admiral failed to assert dominance in the seas near Japan, despite having multiple viable options. Tactically, Rogersvensky should have allowed his slower warships, particularly the auxiliary vessels, to sail independently instead of slowing down the entire fleet. Most, more specifically, the Japanese had greater firing rate and higher accuracy, and their bombardment was de devastating. They used the torpedo much more successfully. The warships, mostly of British design, were armored better. The speed of the Japanese main unit was higher substantially than that of the Russians. Fighting as a single unit for more than a year and near their homeland, the Japanese were operationally and morally better prepared. And apparently they were led by better officers. All this made victory almost inevitable. I want to maybe stick with the last point of better officers. Um, a lot of the representation of the reportage of the time, and I think popular media as well, there is the MIT Visualizing Culture website have this wonderful 
series of postcards that I also know from my own work. And I'm sure you all know that when they construct, contrast the admirals, right? Tojo on one hand, and not just Tojo, all the others, right? But specifically Tojo uh, on one hand and uh, Rojevensky on the other, right? And as a cultural historian, uh, social historian, I'm slightly uncomfortable with such focus on great men. Uh, I have to say, uh, at the time, and maybe even in retrospect, it's, uh, it's kind of a, you, you can say it's a bigger problem of military history as a whole. So I wanted to ask a little bit more about the experience of common sailors in the fleet. Right? Um, and what way, if any, has contributed to the outcome of the battle? I mean, what? how did the common sailor, how did the, those thousands of people uh, that, that participated in the battle, what was their experience of the battle? I like your observation, Ron. Admirals, much like much like army commanders or statement in general, play significantly significant roles in naval battles, for better or for worse. As leaders in battle, admiral possess greater command and control over their naval forces compared to generals in land-based warfare. The decisions and strategic acumen can greatly influence the outcome of a naval engagement. And yet, it is important to note that the media often tend to overemphasize the role of admirals. This occurs because the media finds it convenient to personify the complex battle through the figure of the admiral, thereby simplifying it for the general public. It is crucial, though, to recognize that naval battles involve numerous factors beyond the control of any individual admiral and rely on the collective efforts of the entire Navy force. Nevertheless, common sailors, because of this, common sailors are highly important. They are the building blocks for the success of a Navy in battle. The life of the common sailor during that time, and perhaps even today, was far from, far from the idyllic image conveyed by the phrase uh, join the navy and see the world. Japanese soldiers, sailors of that era, did not have the opportunity to travel overseas, while the Russian sailors who did embark on their journey covering approximately, approximately 33,000 kilometers hardly had the chance to set foot on land. The living conditions were austere, with sleeping quarters consisting of hammocks near the assigned guns, and meals often being of poor quality. The daily routines were filled with constant work, rigorous cleaning, training, and limited rest. Sailors were subjected to ongoing violence perpetrated by their superiors and peers, and corporal punishment was commonly used as a form of discipline, not a great life, in fact. Yeah, yeah. I, mm-hmm. yeah I, I remember I just did a, a lot of research on trauma in the Imperial Army and Navy, and like in the Imperial Navy, when people complain about any kind of mental issues, they usually get slapped. That's, that's psychiatrists in the Navy explained this. It's, it's, it was very, very brutal. I'm from the Japanese side, of course, but I guess also from Russian. Until 1945, and prob- I wonder if it still happened there. Probably not. Shortly after the Russian Armada set sail for Asia, and this is also interesting, the Russian Revolution of 1905 erupted, marked by widespread rebellion by both civilians and soldiers against the oppressive Tsarist regime. The Russian Imperial Navy, Navy was not exempt from this wave of unrest. In the Black Sea Fleet, the crew of the battleship Potemkin took part in this in a significant rebellion, which involved killing their officers, firing upon the city of Odessa, and ultimately escaping. There's a famous uh, film by Sergei Eisenstadt, the battleship yeah. of Tolkien from 1925. Yeah, with the prom falling down the stairs, right? Yes, famous yeah. So the spirit of revolution was not evident among the crews was also evident among the crews of the Russian Armada. While some of the sailors carried the sentiment of revolution with them during their journey, aside from limited training opportunities during the voyage, 
it is difficult to assert, ascertain how extensively this revolutionary fervor influenced their action during the actual battle. But clearly, the entire voyage was affected by the spirit, although we don't see much evidence for it in the last moment of the battle. You may wonder whether the decision to surrender eventually, this Nebogatov, was related to that. Yeah, it's like naval culture, army culture is something that I think in the last couple of years in military history is something more and more people are writing on. It is militaries of culture. Um, and of course, culture goes well beyond the general and the admiral, which of course, as you said, are important, but it's uh, fascinating. Thank you. I want to talk more about the battle of technologies and everything, but for each in um, and ages of time, I want to skip a little bit more uh, and maybe stay with culture, actually, and talk about, after all, it was not just any battle, right? Unlike maybe more like Lepento, but unlike Trafalgar, um, it was a battle between two, two at the time, people would call it two races, right? It is the battle's outcome, as you wrote about, and it's very well known, reverberated all around the non-Western world. And they're cheered up even in Korea and China. I think you mentioned Korea. There's a very famous quote by Mao, who rejoice, Mao Zedong rejoice over the outcome of the battle. Uh, and of course, it was, you know, it, it connected to the whole idea of Euro peril and everything. So could you tell us, tell us more about the reactions in the colonial world and also in the metropole? And Europe, I mean, because this was not just any battle and any victory, right? By 1905, large parts of the globe were already connected to each other by an extensive network of land and undersea communication cables. More specifically, the war zone was also linked to this global network to the extent the Russo-Japanese war was the first full-fledged conflict of modern communication. I mean, it's difficult for us to imagine, but... Yes, in the beginning of the 20th century, newspapers, even the smallest towns in the U.S. or in Europe, covered this uh, this story. So the Japanese victory in Tsushima was met with an overwhelming mix of shock and surprise among some, while others reveled in jubilation. In Europe, exactly it depends where, but in France... It was a shocking uh, victory because France was a, an ally of Russia. In Germany, it, uh, was a, it was accepted with mixed feeling. And while Germany supported Russia, some Germans already could see the future. Among them, there was a young, uh, not a young boy already, but a youth who was 16 at that time, Adolf Hitler, also rejoiced at least in later years he mentioned it as a as a moment of enlightenment about the future in the colonial world the response was unanimous the victory was seen as a blow to the western world and the colonial powers it was seen also as a sign perhaps and an, an omen for some that the white man's dominance was not indefinite Considering the Russian Russian Empire an enemy, the media in the Muslim countries, such as the Ottoman Empire, Iran, and the Caucasus, welcomed the Japanese triumphs in particular. In India, the public followed the war excitedly, and the Japanese victory in Tsushima was perceived as a harbinger of liberation. In East Asia, too, the vast majority supported Japan, which might be surprising as later Japan would be a colonial power, but at that stage, still, there were some high expectations of Japan. In China, in essence, a victim of the war, many newspapers regarded the battle as a final blow to white racism and as the apex of a war that made the yellow people, that's the way they wrote already, defended, defend themselves and stand with pride. During the following years, thousands of Chinese students flocked to Japan to study. Japan became the mecca of colonial subjects dreaming of liberation. Quite incredible when you think about what would happen 34 years later. Of course, but as historians, we're, we're trained not to think about thinking about what will come later, but you can 
you can't escape it, right? Um, you also, in the book, very interestingly, you also showed uh, bring, uh, and this maybe will move a little bit to commemorational. So you bring the reaction of uh, the Jewish world, um, which, of course, this is the time, if you think about Jewish history, is a time with the pogroms in Russia. Uh, and, but on the other hand, thousands, uh, thousands, right, of Jews fought for Russia, um, were conscripted, including very famous uh, people later in the history of Israel, like Yosef Tumpador and others. Um, and this maybe we can bring a little bit the memory of the Holocaust I mentioned before. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about those connections and also in connection, how is it remembered? I mean, going beyond the Jewish world, of course, which is a, a relatively minor uh, topic about how was it remembered in Russia and in, in Japan in general? Well, uh, both in Japan and Russia, the memory of the end commemoration of the battle underwent substantial transformation during the last 118 years, and it's quite uh, fascinating or intriguing to see how commemoration changed throughout the, the years. But after all, these two countries witnessed tremendous changes. In Japan, we can see three phases. In the first 40 years after the, the, the battle, we call it the Imperial Era, era it was, uh, the battle was a source of pride and jubilation, was uh, the Navy Day, was the day of victory in Tsushima. It was an important museum open using the flagship Mikasa as the limelight of that museum in Yokosuka. It was open in, in 1926. So the battle was very important. And then once Japan lost the war, we may call it uh, forced amnesia. We're talking about the occupation era, six, seven years of American or allied uh, control of Japan, and probably even a few more years until 1957, when the first film was made, post-war film about the, the battle. And then from 1957 until today, this kind of post-war independence era, this the battle became a source of pride and ideal. This is quite interesting. So, in fact, I claim in the book that this battle is the last stage in Japanese modern history, which was quite short, in which Japanese can, on the one hand, feel pride, and on the, on the other hand, without any shame, I mean, they defended their country, and on the other hand, they won a great battle. In later years, they would either either have, I mean, battles without pride, I mean, victories without pride, or losses with pride. But here is the last opportunity to have something to rejoice. And I can see the way uh, this book, Tsushima, was uh, translated into Japanese uh, and published uh, about months, a month ago. And I can see how the media referred to the book quite interestingly, as a source of pride for young people and at the same time as a kind of a warning what not to do, I mean, after a great victory. It's quite interesting the way yeah. it is accepted the today. The was the, the cause for this interview, actually, which I failed to mention. I'm sorry, yeah, that the book was just translated to Japanese. Congratulations on this. And, uh, yeah, I should really look out those reactions because I have... A, uh, local interest here. I'm right now in Fukuoka, and, and as you mentioned before, it's not very far from Tsushima, and it's very interesting to see how well maintained are all those memorials. There's a lot of memorials to Russia-Japanese war around here, and they're very well maintained, right? They're they're still you wouldn't find many World War II memorials, if any, but what was not, but the uh, Russia-Japanese war are very they're big, and they're speak spacking clean also. It's fascinating because most of the the memorials, I mean, more than half of them were erected immediately on the first decade after the war. And then yeah. the next wave of memorials emerged in the last 20 years. And it's quite interesting, this idea in Japan that soft power can be achieved also or gained by, um, call it humanitarian, behavior and the Russo-Japanese war offers quite a lot of incidents of uh, humanitarian behavior and 
Tsushima as well. I mean, there is in one of, in the island of Tsushima, there are several now memorials erected with the Russian, Russia helps recently, I mean, Putin's Russia, and while emphasizing the friendship between the two people and the kind behavior of the local people on the island accepting the Russian survivors of that Navy. Yeah, that's before the current war, right? I mean, relationship now are very different. Right, right. Until a year ago. Yeah, yeah it's, it's you can write a whole book just on commemoration and like only on those memorials. Um, but uh, speaking of humanitarianism, of course, I mean, uh, you write about this and many other people, not many, and Nob Shimazu and other wrote about how Russia-Japanese war was a cause for Japan to show how its humanitarian side, its civilized side, right? Um, very, very different from how they treated Chinese and Korean POWs, of course. Um, again, to going back to the Jewish angle, of course, is one of the most famous uh, Jewish prisoners. Tuomodo was a prisoner in Japan, and there is a Jewish connection there. I wonder if you can elaborate on uh, a little bit. Um, yes. So, uh, in my in my view, the Jewish involvement in, in this war, from both the Japanese and Russian perspective, was relatively minor. But still, I do admit. It's of certain interest. On the one hand, Jacob Schiff, an American banker of Jewish descent, played a significant role in providing financial support to Japan during that war, contributing as much as half of the funds that Japan was able to secure. However, Schiff's assistance was given in his personal capacity rather than as a representative of the Jewish people while his exact motivation for aiding Japan remained somewhat unclear, he did express uh, a desire to seek retribution against Russia for its policies against the Jews, particularly referring to the Kishinev pogrom of 1903. However, it is worth noting that the loans he provided also aligned with his own economic interests, and the interest on them was rather high. So the motives were probably... <laughs> no, in used to to state. I'm, I'm restating this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you story. Uh, just to humanitarianism. I mean, you just wrote uh, another paper uh, in American Historical Review about uh, about um, not a case of Japanese humanitarianism, right? But Sugihara, right? Sugihara Chioni. There a connection there that you can see between those two. Not really, besides the fact that Sugihara was five years old and at that time, and maybe he heard about it, but uh, there is uh, some connection of the way both the Sugihara case and uh, some of the humanitarian uh, uh, exploits of the uh, post-Tsushima one were have been used recently, but uh, it's quite a far-fetched. So, and going back to the, to the Jewish aspect here, so on the other hand, Russia, where incidents of pogroms against Jews were not uncommon, mobilized around 30,000 Jewish soldiers during the war. Approximately half of the medical doctors serving in the Russian forces were Jewish, including notable figures like Henrik Goldschmidt. I don't know if you heard the name, but it's better known as Janusz Korczak. So... He was a doctor in the in the Russo-Japanese War somewhere in Manchuria. So more than 1,700 of these Jewish soldiers became prisoners of war in Japanese custody. Recently, I translate. I, I am translating and editing uh, several diaries of such uh, uh, Jewish uh, prisoners of war, and. They show quite a uh, fascinating uh, view of on, on the war in general and Japanese uh, captivity in particular. So among them, among them was uh, Joseph Boy Trumpeldor, who later gained recognition as a Zionist hero in Palestine, often forgotten in contrast to the condition experienced during the Pacific War, the treatment of prisoners by the Japanese. As you mentioned earlier, including Jewish prisoners, was remarkably commendable and was used by the media, Japanese media, 
government to I mean, to gain points in the competition in Western public opinion. So the Japanese demonstrated a level of treatment that can be considered exemplary to the extent that some prisoners expressed reluctance to return home upon their liberation. So several hundred Russian prisoners remained in Japan for at least a few years. So it was a quite a special period. Yeah, the POWs, it's, uh, it's uh, angle is, is fascinating. I don't know if you know, uh, I think I told you already, like I have a colleague here who works on German POWs in Kyushu University, uh, Imai Sensei, and he, he told me that the German POWs uh, during World War I were the one uh, who built a lot of those memorials. So there are many connections there. But I want to go not to World War I, but World War II, uh, and, and maybe going back, back to the technology question that I skipped before, um, given the impact of the battle, can, can you connect Tsushima and Pearl Harbor and the, the decision to go to war with the U.S.? And particularly, I'm thinking here about uh, the importance of uh, battleships and the neglect of uh, the carriers in Pearl Harbor. I visited uh, Kure lately uh, and the Yamata Museum, and I could not have wondering the contrast between how technologically advanced was the battleship Yamato, but how absolutely useless he was and also really the criminal tragedy of deploying the battleship in such a suicidal way uh maybe briefly uh, given time maybe you can address this also i visited the yamato can in yamato can in Kue as well a music museum dedicated to the renowned battleship yamato it is a truly emotionally uh, intellectually captivating museum that evokes a sense of awe for the sheer magnitude of that warship and the extraordinary courage displayed by its crew. At the same time, it also prompts contemplation regarding the regrettable military decision-making and strategic heroes, which from our present-day perspective apparent appear misguided and ill-fated. It is a place that invites deep reflection, I think, on the consequences of such choices and the tragic fate that awaited the ship in an ultimately doomed battle. It may give even a window to the entire decision to go for war uh, in Japan at that time. I wonder what the, the visitors think, uh, especially the Japanese visitors at the time I visited there, so five years ago, it was a sign that already 10 million people had visited the museum. It's one of the most successful museums in Japan. So the Amatro, the battleship, is a direct descendant of the battleships that took part in the Battle of Tsushima. In this sense, the much older museums of the battleship, battleship Mikasa in Yokosuka, and the battleships that served as the Admiral Stogo's flagship, in Tsushima can be seen as the forerunner of the Yamato and what we see or what started in in Tsushima eventually in 1905 led almost directly to the demise of the Yamato in 1945 40 years later and that's because of the this fanatical belief in the power of battleships and battleship fleets Oh, yes, and uh, maybe also the belief in the power in general that to yeah make things battle and everything. Yeah. yeah, you know, it's the Yamato Peace Museum after all. And when you go there, it's it's really it's really, I mean this this podcast is not about the the, the Yamato, but it's really um, mind boggling the, the contrast between the way they present this and and the outcome that it's so well known yet it's almost not present there, right? Yeah. No, little ship, little piece there. In fact, it's a quite a nationalistic yeah. museum. If yeah. you, yeah, you can buy Imperial Army beer and Imperial Army T-shirts. <laughs> yeah, uh, if I wouldn't go there with Korean friends, it's uh, or Chinese friends. It's a, it's, it's a very it's it's an in, interesting place. I would say. Um, all right, so uh, we already uh, spoke a lot. There's so many more things to talk about, but. Uh, I will, before I conclude, I want to ask you, 
Uh, could you tell me, I mean, we already talked a little bit about things you just worked on, the Sugihara and uh, Jews in Asia. Can you tell me what's the big next project for you? What are you working on now? Well, uh, in my research efforts are, have been focused on three distinct lines of inquiry that occasionally intersect as often happen in certain stage in our uh, career. But apart from writing about the Russo-Japanese war, I'm very much interested in the way uh, questions of race about Japan evolved uh, from their uh, onset several hundred years ago. I mean, the way the Western world look at Japan and the way Japanese uh, develop their own racial view of themselves and the world around them. So uh, I'm now on the verge of completion uh, volume two in this kind of uh, series of book that lead to World War II. And this book deals with the period from 1735, uh, this beginning of a modern taxonomic system that also divides the races uh, to 1854, this the time when Japan was forced, forcibly opened. So this is quite a crucial period between the intensive uh, encounter of Japan with the West. Thank you. And then I'm going to be volume three also that will cover the Tsushima era. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> and then I know how much you work on, on other issues also. So it's, uh, yeah, it's quite amazing. I'm looking forward for this and maybe we can have it, give you back here for this also. Thank you very much, Otem. I uh, really enjoyed it. And I hope you have a beautiful um, morning now. Thank you. Okay. Much, man. Thank you. My pleasure. Goodbye.